Yeah, I mean, the lesson is the length of the lesson. So when I get handed this thing seven minutes early, it should mean you get out seven minutes early. I don't know if it works that way or not, but we'll give it a try. Um, uh, This morning, leptons, quarks, and the personal God. Uh, I want to thank many of you who gave us uh, nice feedback and response last week. I hope this set of lessons inspires and, and challenges you. I hope it grows you in your faith. And most importantly, I hope you'll find someone under the age of 35 to share it with and to get either involved in coming to the class or looking at the class. Because these are things that, that, that especially those who are under the age of 35 will plug into in some ways, importantly, more than uh, those over 35 perhaps. And I, I don't mean that. Obviously, there are exceptions at every end. But anyway, here it is. If you think you understand God, then you don't understand God. Now, by that, I don't mean that God's not understandable. He is. But our understanding of God is so minuscule in comparison to who God is. That we always need to keep that in mind and always need to be very careful on how much we claim to understand and know God. He is knowable, certainly. He is understandable, certainly. But it is because of what he has revealed himself to be. Otherwise, and beyond that, we have very little to no shot. So to that extent, I am convinced that one of the biggest tools to help us understand how great and awesome God is is modern science. And that may surprise some people because there are a lot of people who think that science is almost incompatible with God and faith. But I would suggest to you that science is not incompatible. Science actually opens a door to seeing and understanding God on a vastly larger scale than we would normally know or see him as. To that extent, I agree with this fellow named Sir John Polkinghorne. Now, don't laugh, that's his name. (laughs) Sir John Polkinghorne, his name, knighted by the Queen of England, hence the Sir. A fellow of the Royal Academy of Sciences, which is Britain's most prestigious collection of scientists. He was the president of a college at Cambridge University. He was a professor of theoretical physics, mathematical physics. An absolutely brilliant, first-rate scientist. Who, after accomplishing a great deal in his area, decided to leave his post at Cambridge... And become an Anglican priest. And so he was a clergyman in the Anglican church. Along with being a first rate scientist. Still alive today. Occasionally you might hear him speak somewhere or another. But here's what he said. He said there's a feeling throughout our society. That religious belief is outmoded or downright impossible in a scientific age. I don't agree. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that if people in this so-called scientific age knew a bit more about science than many of them actually do, they'd find it easier to share my view. Now, this is a man worth respect. If I were to stand up here and tell you, oh, I think science proclaims the grandeur of God, you might listen because y'all are my friends. But back in your back pocket, you would be saying, well, what's he got? He's got a law degree. He dabbles with science in the courtroom. And he has a degree in Greek and Hebrew. So maybe he knows something about the names of science. But when Sir John Polkinghorne says this, we've got to pay attention. Because this man has been a leader... And he has been at the top of the scientific community in the areas that we are discussing this morning. So, here's the way I would like to start this out. 
If you have a small g God, and that's it, then science may be a little bothersome to you. Because science can take the small g God and... and, and blow it to pieces. If you have a small g God and you go to school and you start learning from science, if you have a small g God and you start looking at particle physics, then you are in danger of your perception of God being blown to bits. But it's not because the small g God loses to science. It's because there is no such thing as a small g God. So it'd be a little bit more like this. Science is not going to destroy God. Now... I wish I could do something more than have God's shoe on the screen, okay? But his shoe wouldn't, would do more than fill the screen. But God stomps out any idea. There, there's not, that, that, that stick of dynamite isn't even a firecracker in the presence of who God really is. Now, I don't know if you read the news or not this week. If you saw any of the news, maybe you saw this. IBM put out the Sequoia computer or brought it uh, 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 online and active. The Sequoia computer set the new speed record for computers. It's the fastest computer in the history of humanity. The Sequoia computer. Now, I asked Gracie to help me draw an illustration of this speed, and here is what it is. Let me explain her drawing. In one hour, the Sequoia computer does the computations of 6.7 billion people all working with calculators 24-7, 365 days a year for 320 years. This computer in one hour does the math that every human being on the planet, never sleeping, working with a calculator, all the time would take 320 years to perform. Computer does it in one hour. Hence, supercomputer is what it's called. Now, this computer sets this speed record. And you're sitting there saying, why does anybody need a computer that fast? I mean... The computer that runs at half that speed beats me at chess. It doesn't need to get any faster. What are we going to do with that type of speed? Well, we can look at some other headlines or read the stories. This geek tech headline. The IBM builds the world's fastest supercomputer to help take care of our nukes. See, we've got all these nuclear weapons stockpiled, and we don't want to be doing all this testing of the weapons, but we have learned that we can use supercomputers to do the testing for us. So we don't have to explode nuclear bombs to see how this is working. The mathematics behind the nuclear explosion can be done by a computer, but it takes a supercomputer to do it. Why? Because if you want to take care of the nukes, we're talking about an atomic explosion. And the atom is very, very small. You want to see an atom? Well, I would tell you to inhale. Take in a breath. But the problem is one breath equals a hundred million billion billion atoms of oxygen you just inhaled. That's a lot of, that's a lot of atoms. So we can't use a breath. So instead, let's use that 14-point font period that you can find on one of your outlines that I've handed you. On that period, you've got a smaller number of atoms. There, eh, we're just dealing with 100 billion in that period. So you want to see the atom? 
All you need to do is take the period. You want me to put it up on the screen? Nah, that's not good enough. If you want to see an atom in that period, that dot on the paper, just pull the dot far enough apart, blow it up to where it's the size of a football field. And when you've got it the size of a football field, you'll be able to see the atom. Now, an atom, if we can come over here for a moment, when we're looking at an atom, you've got atom, if we were to get really, really close to this, we'll call this an atom. And if we were to get so close that we could blow that atom up and look at it as something bigger, we would see a nucleus, which is the center. We'll, we'll put an N there for nucleus. And then going around that nucleus would be electrons. And they rotate in an electron field. So you've got the nucleus and you've got the electrons going around it. And the number of electrons will vary depending upon what type of an atom we're looking at. But that's what it would look like. If you want to see the atom... Now, let's say you wanted to see that nucleus, this uh, inside part. Let's go back here. If we wanted to see the nucleus, it would not do to expand that dot to the size of a football field. That's just going to show us the atom. The nucleus, the center of the atom, you've got to make the dot bigger. Instead of that, the period, if you want to see the nucleus... Stretch that dot. It's just of one atom. Stretch that dot from the North Pole to the South Pole. About 10,000 kilometers if you cut through the Earth. That's going to give you, finally, a chance to see the nucleus inside of the atom. Now, let's go back here. If we look at this, scientists tell us that that electron, it doesn't break down into anything more that they know of. They think it's what's called a fundamental particle. A fundamental particle. And by that they mean it's, it, it, you, you can't break it down anymore. Now, they don't know that for certain. Because the most they're able to look at something is 10 to the minus 18th meter. That would mean point oh 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 meters. Whoops. I guess you get a one there, sorry. Meter. That's not that's a pretty small thing. But they can't tell if the electron is anything else other than an electron. Not so the nucleus. The nucleus actually breaks apart. There are protons and neutrons in the nucleus. And you can take those protons and break them apart into quarks. And some of you watch Deep Space Nine and think you know what a quark looks like. If so, you're a nerd. Um... <clears throat> I watch Deep Space Nine. I know what a quark looks like, so I can say that. It takes one to know one. Quarks. There are two different kinds of quarks, they think. Up quarks and down quarks. And these uh, fit together in some little bundle that form the nucleus. By the way, they think quarks may be made of string-type oscillation things. String theory we won't get into. But I will tell you this. You want to see the quark? It will not do to stretch from the North Pole to the South Pole. If you want to see the quark in that period, you've got to stretch that dot off of Earth, go past the moon, 20 times past the moon to see a quark in the proton, in the nucleus, in the atom, in your, the period there or in your body. Do you know how many atoms are in you as a person? The atoms in you as a person? A lot. Did you know you can take the atoms in you and stretch them 
singularly across the entire universe. And that's just you. There's 6.7 billion of us today. And we're not the only things with atoms in us. My daughter Gracie has a dog, Kingsley. His second birthday party is today. Kingsley's made of atoms. And so are the treats that we will be feeding him. And so is the stage and platform and the walls and the seats and the screen. Everything on earth is made of these atoms. And we talked last week about the sextillion stars that are out there. Our sun alone a million times the size of planet earth. It is not even possible to put enough zeros down of how many quarks there are in the universe. And God knows them all. Scientists don't know how the electron... They, 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 there's this uncertainty principle where uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is, is really interesting. If they can tell you where an electron is, then that's not really where the electron is because they've had to do something to get it there which denies it being there. We don't know how these... We, we can tell you statistically what's going to happen... But we can't give you with precision the orbit of the electron at any certain point in time around the nucleus. God can. Around all of these atoms that are innumerable throughout not just the universe today, but all time, past and present and future. Now, here's a problem. How can there be a God who knows every quark in history? How can there be a God who truly knows every quark and knows whether or not string theory is correct and whether they're oscillating strings? And how many dimensions they may be in? How can there be a God like that? Well, let me throw out some options. Option one. We could just dismiss God because he doesn't fit into our brain. Well, you could just say, well, I can't really think of any being being able to do that, so there must be no God. As if this little collection of atoms that are all formed together and bunched into molecules that bunch into various DNA structures and membranes and, and cellular fiber of who we are in our minds, as if it's going to really comprehend such a God. So one option is just to dismiss God because he doesn't fit in our brain. I would suggest to you that's an illogical option. That is an uninformed option. You just go back a hundred years ago and you ask the best scientific mind if there would ever be a machine that would fit into a room that could compute in one hour what it would take 6.7 billion people 320 years with calculators to do. And I'll bet you 10 out of 10 would say, no, that can't be done. And if it could be, certainly not within the next hundred years. And they would be wrong. We, we don't... It is the height of arrogance and hubris to think that our minds are the judge-all of what can exist. Our minds are not. They're not built to do it. They're not tuned to do it. We don't have the senses to be able to... You can see a speck of dust. But that's about the limit of what your eyes can sense and distinguish. The only reason we know some of these other things is because first microscopes, then they don't even get there. It takes electron microscopes where you shoot electrons and see how they react to things. To figure out things too small for the, even the microscope. Do we honestly think that we should dismiss God simply because an individual on this earth can't wrap their mind around it? 
I would say this. If you can wrap your mind around God, that's when you dismiss him. Because he is no God. He may just be you on steroids. But if he fits into your brain, that's not God. Option number two. Well, why don't we just reduce God down to what we can fit into our brain? We won't dismiss him. We'll reduce him down. He'll be the God of wonderful stories. He'll be the God who makes us feel better. He'll be the God that we can pray to and just hope that he answers. He'll be the God we can hide things from. He'll be the God who, who just fits. And we'll close off science. And we won't, who needs to know about quarks anyway? I'm through with school. School was quarky enough. Why do I need to know this stuff? Let me just live my life unfiltered by these things. And I'll show up at church and I'll sing the songs. Although I dare say after last week's lesson... The song we sang this morning about God putting each star into place and calling them by name, followed by unfathomable, incomprehensible, incomparable, just amazing God, has a brand new meaning for me. And I hope it does you. But, you know, do we just want to reduce God down to something we can fit in our brain? That's an option. I don't think it's a good option. Because I think once we do this, as Larry Burgess sent me in an email, once we do this, what we're really doing is carrying around an idol, a reflection of God that's us. Then all of a sudden, if we have a God who fits in our brain, that God is really only us. Maybe it's our highest and best us. But now God is defined by what we can define. Now God is what we think he is. God is a product of our imagination. And that's not an option I can handle. Let me give you option number three. Maybe God's a supercomputer. Maybe he's like a a, a billion sequoias all put together. Maybe he's like this massive, massive, other universal Big, big, big computer. And then maybe our solar system is like an atom. And, and, and the sun is the nucleus. And the planets are the electrons spinning around it. And there's just this massive computer God out there who has figured out where all the planets and solar systems are and figured out that it's not quarks, but there are people down there on that electron spinning around. And this whole thing just becomes a, God becomes a number cruncher. A universe maker. He's a supercomputer. No, that doesn't do it for me either. It does not work for me to put God on the basis of a machine. There's too much creative thought. I've got an ability to think. God's got to have every ability I've got and more. If, If I can think, how dare I think I can think, but God can't. He's just a computer, a number cruncher. That doesn't work. Here's the problem with all of those options. All of those options are us trying to figure out who God is. Let me tell you a solution. And it's the only solution that makes logical sense to me anyway. A God who knows every quark in history. A God that beyond comprehension will only be known and understood when... He reveals himself. It's not man up. It's not me figuring out God. It's God saying, okay, I want to reveal 
myself to you. And so God does. And what we know of God, we don't know because we figured it out. What we know of God then, we know because He revealed it to us. It's what God has revealed. And that's why if we understand God, we understand that we don't understand Him. Because He has revealed Himself to us in ways that we can understand. But there is so much more to Him than we can grasp. Just can't do it. Just won't fit in our brain. He's not just us on steroids. He's not just a bigger, bolder, brighter, better human with immortality. He's God. If he was just a bigger, better, brighter, better human with immortality, we could have made engraven images of him all day. But his first commandment was don't do it because you can't. Don't ever reduce God to something you grasp. Grasp that aspects of those aspects of God that He reveals to you, but accept and know that He is so much more. And that's where I want us to go with this. To that extent, here's what I have to offer you. We're not the first people to try and figure out the fabric of the universe. We're not the first people to try and figure out, is there a quark? Or behind the quarks and the other particles, are there strings, oscillating strings that are the, the, the sum and substance of the universe? Is the entire universe made of that? Is that the ultimate Lego that the whole structure is put together from? Well, that question's been asked for a long time. And one of my favorite people to ask it was this fellow who's rather enigmatic. We don't know a lot about him. We know that he lived in Ephesus around 500 B.C. His name was Heraclitus. Heraclitus was an interesting fellow. He was not that well-liked. He always had pithy things to say. He didn't like politicians, nothing personal, Debbie. Um, He was, in later years, supposedly playing dice with kids in the street. And someone went up to him and said, don't you have something better to do with your time than to play with kids? And he looked at him and said, you're a politician? And you have the gall to ask me that? Like, don't you have something better to do with your time than to play with kids? Which is what politicians back then did. (laughs) I'm sure he had something bad to say about lawyers, too. I just don't know that one. Um, So let me go on with him. Let me tell you some of the stuff Heraclitus said. Heraclitus tried to find that one one common thing in the universe. So here's here's what he did. As he's looking for this unifying force of nature, the one thing that unites everything all together, he would come up with these sayings like this. Here's one of them. Good and bad are the same. It's all a question of perspective. But don't think that there's a commonness. Good and bad are the same. You might be saying, no, I don't really get that. But let me give you another one. Seawater is both very pure and very polluted or foul. To the fishes, it's drinkable and healthful. But to men, seawater is undrinkable and deadly. So there's a commonality, a common thread there. And he said, I, he basically tried to see ways he could find something in common, that unifying force behind everything. Some of his stuff makes some sense. Some of it doesn't make much sense. How about this one? Immortals, mortals, mortal, immortals. One living the other's death and dying the other's life. Okay, that's almost Dr. Zeus-ish. It's really hard to make sense of it. I went back, I tried to translate it out of the Greek. And uh, uh, working it out of the Greek, it's, it helps a little bit. Here's, in, here's the Lemire translation. Immortals are mortal. Because their life that they're living is one of death. Now, they're, they're never going to die, so they're dying every day. So their living life is one of death. Meanwhile, mortals are immortals because every day they're dying what the immortals live. 
So they're all the same. Now you're sitting there saying, this guy makes no sense. I would agree in some regards. But he was very, very popular. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they studied him. A copy of his writings were placed in the temple of Artemis at Ephesus. Which is the big temple. He was Ephesus's big claim to fame for philosophy. The Ephesians thought he was it. He put them on the map in the philosophical world. The Stoics considered him their patron saint of sorts. Now, I tell you all of that to say he's not the only fella. Who, oh, no. Something just happened. Ignore that. Let's go back to that. He's not the only fella to write from Ephesus. I want to show you who else wrote from Ephesus, but before I do it, I need to give you one big quote of Heraclitus that he's very famous for, at least with me. It goes like this. It's wise to listen, not to me, but to the logos, to the word. It's wise to confess that everything is one. This logos, this word, which is ever true, men prove as incapable of understanding when they hear it for the first time as before they've heard it at all. For although things happen in accordance with this logos, men seem as though they had no experience thereof. Logos, word. Here's what he's saying. This was his introduction to on the universe. His explanation of things. If you want to find the unifying force behind everything, look to the word, the logos, logic, reason, rationality. All valid translations of that Greek word logos. Word, logic, reason, rationality. If you want to see the consistency, look to that consistent principle. Because while men don't understand it, it's there. And everything is united in it. And everything is true in it. And everything happens in accordance with it. And this was the big Ephesian philosophical contribution to the world. Until about 70, 80, 90 A.D. When according to church history, the Apostle John, living in Ephesus, writes his gospel. Keep in mind what we just read, and let's look at John's gospel. John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He, the Logos, was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through the Logos. And without the Logos was not anything made that was made. In the Logos was life, that life was the light of men. It shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. That fits very, very, very well with Heraclitus. John could write something that the Ephesians would readily identify as their heritage. The temple of Artemis was up the hill with Heraclitus' words in it. Heraclitus was popular enough that the church fathers and other philosophers were still quoting him by memory a hundred years after John wrote this. So John's writing something. Now I've put in the lesson, John's a master at writing things with dual meanings. He's wonderful at, at the efficiency of writing something that means multiple truths at one time. So there's a whole level of truth to this to a Hebrew reader that's not even familiar with Logos. That would have echoed out of John's past in Israel. But I want to concentrate in this presentation on the, the, the Greek perspective. This is very Heraclitus. There was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God. 
through the Word everything was made. There's nothing that's not... It's the unifying force. If we go back to Heraclitus, look at it again, please, from the PowerPoint. It's wise to listen, not to me, but to the Logos. It's wise to confess that all things are one. This Logos, which is ever true, men prove incapable of understanding it when they hear it for the first time, just as they've heard it at all. But even though things happen in accordance with this Logos, men don't seem to understand that. Here's the difference. If we can go back to John. John starts out profoundly giving us the Logos of Heraclitus. But this Logos, this unifying force, this God, is not something that is dismissed. It's not something that fits in the brain. It's not something that humanity figures out on its own. And it's certainly not a supercomputer. Look at verse 14. And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Logos, the unifying force of of the universe, God, became man. God who knows every quark of nature took on human form, the atoms of humanity, and revealed himself to us. You can't take God conceptually and put God into your brain, and I can't do it either. Our brains don't function that way. It's not the language of our brains to understand who could do all of this and know so much. And we can't conceive of someone who has vision to see a quark because it's so far beyond what our capabilities are. We can't envision that. So the God who wants us to understand him chooses to take on human form to help us see him in ways we can understand. And it's a wonderful way that God reveals himself. Look what we read here. If we can go back. Um, And and, and I'm going to going to have to to push you a little bit on the Greek, okay? The word, the logos became flesh. This phrase right here, dwelt among us. That word dwelt, let's highlight it. That word dwelt in the Greek is not the word lived, not he lived among us. It's the word he pitched His tent among us. God did not become human forever. He brought his tent and stayed here for a while. He came to reveal himself to us, but this is not his home. He's not bound by humanity. He's not bound by atoms. He's not bound... By human form. He came and he pitched his tent. But you know how I told you John's really good at putting multiple meanings into things? We need to divert for a moment into the Hebrew meaning of this. That is the same Greek word that the Jews used when they translated the Old Testament tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle in Exodus? God told Moses, build a tabernacle exactly like I'm telling you. Because when you're in the wilderness, you take the tabernacle with you, you erect it, you put the Holy of Holies in there, and the Israelites did so, and the glory of God descended into the tabernacle to show His presence there. And the smoke was so thick that Moses could not see. 
that was God's tabernacle, his tent, in a foreshadowing sense of what Jesus would be. And John is saying that Jesus, the Word, the Logos, became flesh and tabernacled or pitched his tent among us. And just as the glory of God was so great in the tabernacle in Moses' day, where the smoke fills the tabernacle and no one can see who could see God. So when we see Jesus, look what he says. We have seen his Shekinah glory. When Jesus came, when he tabernacled with us, when the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us, we beheld the glory of God. And the glory of God is the glory of relationships. Son and Father. Grace and truth. There are relationships. These are things we humans can understand. These are things we can hold on to. I know what a parent-child relationship is. I got it going both ways. I can understand a human being. I am one. It puts God into something that my little scrawny brain can grasp. I just better never think that I've got the whole picture. What I have is what God has revealed to me. That's what you have. That's what His Word, the revelation of God is. It's God disclosing to us the things we need to know to do His will and to be in relationship with Him on earth. So how did God reveal Himself? If we go back to the PowerPoint. God revealed Himself as personal. God's not a supercomputer. He's not a mathematic algorithm. He's not a monitoring system that keeps up with quarks. He's what we would call a person. Oh, now don't get me wrong. Some of you are out there saying, I've never really understood the Trinity. God in three persons, yet God one. Well, praise the Lord you don't understand the Trinity. Because it, are, are we to understand the nature of God fully? All we can do is understand what He's revealed to us. And He has revealed to us that He is one. And yet He has revealed to us that He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He's personal. We know that much. We should never confuse him with a computer. We also know he's the tent dweller. That he has been present among us. That he has walked the face of this earth. That's mind-boggling to me. That the God who knows every quark in the history of the universe. Who made every quark in the history of the universe. Every lepton which is what the electron is. It's one of the kinds of leptons. Everyone God made. And yet he becomes a human and he walks among us. And when he does so, he does so in relationship. So there's a God who is beyond our understanding, who is bigger than we can conceive, who is more than we can think of, who wants and desires and creates relationship with us individually. Jesus says that in John, same gospel, John makes it a point of Jesus telling us, greater love has no man than this, to lay down his life for a friend. So this awesome, massive, beyond understanding God not only becomes human, but reveals himself to us as father, son, and as friend. That's just beyond my understanding. So here's where I land on this. 
I don't understand God fully. The only thing I understand about God is what's been revealed to me by God. And, and God reveals his things. This is spiritual truths. But his spirit will reveal it to you. It will reveal it. He will reveal it to you. He will reveal it to me. As this personal God has interest in all of us. Which is absolutely amazing to me. That there are leptons and there are quarks. And there is a personal God. Appendix. We can't leave without a couple of points for home. Point for home one. In the beginning was the word. Now I'm going to digress. We're going back over here for a moment. I got to tell you something about the Greek because this, I'm still going to let you out early. Okay, this is just like a freebie. Okay. If we were reading the Greek, in fact, hold on. I brought my Greek New Testament. Um, If we were reading the Greek and we were in, in John 1, In, this is going to come as a real shock to you, but in, the V, by the way, is a Greek in, so sorry, that looks like ev, okay? It's in. It means in. See, you just learned a Greek word. In is in. That's pretty good. This is, in English letters, A, R, and that X is the key, if you remember it from... Chasing sorority girls. C-A, I mean, uh, no. Uh, A-R-C-H. And then that last is the long E. So we'll just say N-R-K. N-R-K. Ain ho lagos. Lagos. N-R-K. Any idea what R-K? Of course, it's in the beginning, right? What do we get from R.K.? Archaeology. Things like archaic. Okay? Look what's missing. In beginning, compare it to our English. Hold on. We'll get the English right up next to it. What's our English got that the Greek doesn't? The. The Greek says, in beginning, was the word. The English says, in the beginning, because it sounds really dorky to say, in beginning, was the word. We'd read it and think, there's a typo in my Bible. I want my money back. What goofball translator did this? But in Greek, they don't have a word for a. The article, the indefinite article, a, like... I want to go to a good school, or I want to go to a university in Texas. They only have the word the, like I want to go to the university in Texas, out in Lubbock. The, they only have that word the, and if the word the is there, you know it's talking about something specific. Like Paul says in Ephesians 2, for by the grace we have been saved. They put the word the, Paul put the word the there. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It, faith. it says, for by the grace, the gift of God, the cross of Christ. He's talking about a specific moment in history. The grace of God. For by the grace of God, the gift of God, we've been saved. Here, he doesn't have the word the. And the reason why is because of this. John's not saying that Jesus was simply in the beginning of the universe. He's saying Jesus is in the beginning of everything. He's in every beginning. In every beginning was the Word. The Word was already at the beginning before the beginning was there. You can't have any beginning without the Word. So if we go back to the PowerPoint. In beginning was the Word. God is everywhere and in everything and He predates everything. There's not a thing in your life. You know what's crazy? Here's, here you want, honestly... You want to know why all of us have, like, goo-goo brains. God knows every lepton and every quark in the entire universe. 
and we think we can hide things from him? I mean, how silly is that? Is that just not patently ridiculous? Well, he doesn't really know what I'm thinking. What? God is everywhere. He's in every beginning. He's before every beginning. He'll be at the end of every beginning. God is everywhere. But we don't leave it there because God became flesh and he chose to dwell among us. That's in the Greek aorist tense. It means it was something that happened specifically at a historical point in time. This event happened. God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. God has chosen to be involved in your life and He has chosen to be involved in mine. Why? Because He loves us. What kind of God is this? That's no supercomputer. I love my computer, but it doesn't love me. At least if it does, it doesn't show it. God loves each of us to be involved in our lives, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father. With a God like that, and a God that we can behold, and a God that we can worship, and a God that we can serve, dare we ever fail to see Him? Dare we ever fail to reduce Him down to something so small? That we're stunned when science says, oh wait, there are leptons and quarks? Oh, there must not be a God. He can't be big enough for that. Shame on us. We need to grow up. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Because otherwise we wouldn't even know how to pray. Lord, if you were not our father and you were not our friend, and we couldn't relate to you in those terms, I, I would be at a loss for even remotely how to talk to you. But through Jesus, through you made flesh, through the redemption purchased by your blood, we come before you. And Lord, we want to know you more fully, we want to know more about you. We want to let knowing you transform our lives as Jesus promised it would. So we commit ourselves, Lord, to learning more about you. To taking off the mold we've tried to fit around you. The box we've constructed to hold you in. And Lord, with eyes wide open, we stand before you dumbfounded at your greatness and honored to be your children.